Today we're going to be continuing in our study walk through the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 10 today, continuing in uh, this next section of the book of Hebrews, which we're looking at holding on to the greater than, the greater than, of course, being Christ. The focus of today's message, we're going to be in uh, verses 32 through 35. <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and read uh, chapter 10, verse 19 through verse 39, which is uh, that part of chapter 10 that is the section. The section goes all the way, uh, at least the way it seems best to be divided through chapter 11, verse 40. Let's hear and give attention to the reading of God's holy, righteous word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning after receiving the knowledge deliberately, restart there. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the ad adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and was outraged by the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us pray. Our Father, we have just now heard your holy word. And we ask, O Lord, that we would receive it as such words from you. Help us that we might live and believe by these words. And all the words that you've given to us. We pray, O oh Father, that this text and what this text communicates to us would be real to us and real to this preacher. 
We ask, O Father, that you would work in our hearts and our minds by your Spirit, that you might increase and strengthen our faith through your Word, by your Spirit. And would you guide this preacher? Would you chain him to the text of your Word that he might freely declare your truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding? And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As mentioned uh, some weeks back when we began this section, uh, this particular part of the book is what we might call an application of everything that we've been learning about Christ the greater than and how he's the greater than. And it begins with this principal idea of the first order of business is hold on. Hold on to the one who is the greater than. There is nothing more important to us than to hold on to Christ the greater than, the one who is the greater than all the prophets who've ever been, greater than angels, who is greater than Moses, who is greater than the priesthood, and who is the greater sacrifice. In fact, we've seen asserted that there is no other way by which one can have access to God. We have seen to look, let go of Christ to seek something better is to seek absolutely nothing. There is nothing. And he, of course, in the context of the book, he's writing to likely Jewish believers who are facing the issue of perse- maybe persecution or pressure or ostracism or something from most likely their countrymen and maybe even the Roman Empire and being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, to the Mosaic Covenant, to return to that. That Mosaic Covenant we've seen is no more. It's past. The Mosaic Covenant is not now and never will again be in force. It has fulfilled its purpose to be a testimony of the law of do this and live and to preserve the people who would bring about Messiah. It has fulfilled its purpose. And to turn to that is to turn to something God has said does not bring about redemption. And so thus we are told to hold on to Christ because of the confidence we have to draw near, to hold fast, to consider how to stir up one another to good works, all in the context of not neglecting to assemble ourselves together. We saw last time in verses 26 through 31 that when we neglect so great a salvation, we are playing with fire. For when we looked at verses 26 through 31, It's been misapplied many times and misunderstood. Idea, there are some heresies that were taught based on this scripture and some others, uh, misunderstandings of them. That would say, after your conversion, a single sin will then condemn you to eternal damnation. That's not what this text is saying. It's not what this text is saying. For he defines what this uh, sinning deliberately is both before and after, and it has everything to do with holding on to Christ. To hold on, to let go of Christ and to turn to other things is to turn to absolutely nothing else, and thus there's only one thing that such a person can have assurance of, that God is a consuming fire and that there's judgment awaiting. 
Now, we've also looked at this is not saying that one who is a believer can lose their salvation either. It is not saying that one who is a genuine believer. But we see that tempered in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The one who has genuine saving faith, even though he may depart, he or she may depart for a while, shall bring be brought to Christ. And if we try to go it alone, based on what we saw before, we're putting ourselves at risk of burning out, losing steam, growing cold, turning from the Savior. <clears throat> we saw that warning. Holding on to Christ is what we must do. And now we're seeing in our text today a continuation of that to remember to, to uh, do the opposite, to hold on to Christ, who is the hope which is the basis of all of our confidence. And there's two basic exhortations in verses 32 through 35 that I want for us to look at today. Those two exhortations are, first of all, remember. The second one is, don't let go. Remember and don't let go or don't throw away. So we have a positive exhortation, which is to do something. And then a negative exhortation, which is to not do something. The positive exhortation is to remember something. The negative is to not let go. And we're going to talk about what we're not to let go of and what we are called upon here to remember. Whenever we approach, uh, whenever we approach a topic for study, one thing we uh, learn, that I learned growing up, and I think most of us did, is the, uh, the, five, the five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And we have some of those in this text here. We have here uh, when, there's to remember when. There's also to remember what. And there's also to remember why. To remember what, when, to remember what, and to remember why. When we see, first of all, when, when what, are to the, what, are, what is the when with regards to their remember? to their remembering. You know, in our conversations, we'll talk with each other, especially some folks who may have had a long-standing relationship and going back and, um, <clears throat> and um, talking with each other, or as some might say, chewing the fat. We'll say, you remember when? Well, that's what he's saying here. Remember when. Remember when. And this when is this in verse uh, 32 to remember or recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. So first of all, the when is after having been enlightened. After the gospel of Christ and when the gospel of Christ had invaded their consciousness and lives by the work of the Spirit to free them from the law of sin and death. No longer bound to all these sacrifices, no longer needing to engage in the details of the law because that law had passed. And now having the knowledge that there was a true sacrifice that has come and this true and complete sacrifice has done something that none of those other sacrifices ever could have done. And that's to remove sin. Those sacrifices did not and could not remove sin. We've seen that uh, asserted several times in the book of Hebrews. 
They testified of a need of forgiveness. And there was a provision in terms of life and the land. But they had to be repeated over and over and over and over and over again. They were of a temporal provision for a covenant that was built around temporal life in the land. These, these, believe, these uh, Jew, believers, most likely Jewish, had come to know the freedom of the Messiah for whom they've been waiting for ages. Now, at the time of Christ, when he came, there were all sorts of expectations about what Messiah would be. The most common one would be, was that he was going to be a, uh, a deliverer who would free them from Roman tyranny would come and finally give them back their piece of land that they've been wanting. What we might call a social political savior. One to come to revolutionize the society. But that's not what came. What came is one who lived a righteous life that no one else could live. And one who died a humiliating death as a sacrifice for sins. But in this, these believers saw, we have what we've been waiting for. We have what we've been waiting for. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. They now, because of that moment, have an eternal hope. They had their first love. So he calls upon them to remember early on things that happened to them. They're bring, having uh, been brought to Christ and that when they brought the Christ, there was the what happened, to remember what. They came to know the freedom of the gospel and the freedom of Christ, freedom from the tyranny of sin, from the guilt and the agony and being freed from the power of sin and the hope of finally being freed one day when Christ returns from the very presence of sin. And because of all that, he says, remember what you endured a hard struggle with sufferings or endured many struggles of sufferings. They endured these things and they continued not wavering in the hope of Christ. They endured many struggles of suffering. And he names some of them. Being publicly exposed to reproach. Being publicly exposed to To affliction, you have that and there, it's publicly exposed, serving both needs. To reproach and affliction, and partnering with those who were treated as such. What is it to be reproached? It is to have one's name drugged through the mud. That's essentially what being reproached is. It is to be, be, be treated and to be looked upon as Someone who is dishonored and dishonorable. That's what reproach is. To be regarded as one who is not worthy of honor and to whom honor should not be given. They had departed and left and come to Christ who was considered a false messiah by many uh, by the vast majority of uh, folks in Judaism at the time. And they were reproached. 
even later on in Christian history under the rule of Nero, Christians were reproached. By this time, many of the Christians were Gentile. And it was when Nero and others thought of Christianity, they would say, oh, that's the religion of the slaves. Because the vast, a good, a good number of Christians, maybe even a majority, were slaves at that time. They were enslaved. And these slaves were also served as elders in churches, deacons in churches. But they were dishonored by those around and reproached, regarded as, well, who cares about them? Or let's not speak of them. Being reproached, even being uh, disregarded by those closest to them, by family. Also publicly exposed to affliction, to pain, to difficulty. You need to find some of that in just a moment, which we'll look at in just a moment. But not only did they endure themselves reproach and affliction, they also were very willing to partner with those who were so treated. They visited other believers who were in prison. And you say, well, I visited prisoners before. That's not that big of a thing. But when you're visiting someone who's in prison because they are Christians because you are, and you are helping them, remember, in first century, when we think of prisons, uh, we have a certain picture. In first century, someone who is imprisoned, if you were to eat, if you were to drink, there had to be someone outside who would bring it to you. And if you were to get basic supplies and clothing, there had to be someone outside who would bring it to you. Believers helped each other in that. But in so doing, they immediately opened themselves up to suspicion, saying, oh, are they one of them? Are they one of them? And maybe drawing the attention of those who would wish for Christians to be imprisoned. And so being associated with other believers, with those who in Christ are experiencing persecution for the sake of righteousness. We see that that compassion on those in prison. And they themselves joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves had a better possession and an abiding hope. That is, they well, they were willing to they were willing to and did accept and endured the plundering of their property such that they were in probably dire poverty. Dire poverty. We oftentimes look at poverty, and someone who is in poverty is oh, they're clearly doing unrighteous things because they're poor. Or they're doing bad things because they're poor. And thus experiencing reproach. Thus experiencing ostracism. I have met many, many, many very righteous people who love the Lord and seek Him, who are very poor, who make 
many professing Christians in the upper middle class put them to shame. But it's also the other way around, too. I've met both. However, they willingly accepted those things. And so that, that we've seen the when and the what, but now there's the why. Why did they endure such? Why is it that they were willing to endure that? Why is it that when they continued in Christianity, they kept receiving difficulty? Culture might look at them and say, you're insane. After all, is not the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results? Why is it that they continued in that? Well, he gives us the why. Since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Why is it they, well, that they accepted reproach? Why is it that they accepted affliction? Accepting by means of continuing to believe Christ, which was something that was an, indir- was, was an indirect cause of this. Why is it that they endured the plundering of their property, even accepted the plundering of their property? It's because they had a better possession, an abiding possession. They had something far greater than honor from men had something far greater than ease of life, had something far greater than health and wealth, had something far greater than status, had something far greater than human influence. They had a possession that's unlike all of the all of those things and many others that can be afforded by men or things that we could cherish in this age it's a possession that abides possessions a possession that is not temporal a possession that does not fade with this age that abiding possession is eternal life and a new city for which they hope, and for which we hope. We've quoted this verse several times in our study of the book of Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we see that there is no that we don't have a lasting city here for which we wait, or to which we look. Rather, the lasting city for which we wait, the one to come, is one that's coming. I'll read that just so we can hear it. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. They possessed that, had right and title to that, and thus accepted those things because that which they were, are wait, were waiting for and that which we are waiting for is far greater than all of those things combined. Honor, lack of affliction, ease of life, status, health, freedom. 
This is the city that Abraham was looking for when he packed up from Ur and left to Canaan, sight unseen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, which we'll be looking at in the near future, so I won't be going too much into this as I don't wish to steal my future thunder. He says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, he's looking, you, you can see that Abraham was looking for something far more than just a place to live. Something greater than what we can see and hold on to. And they realized that they had that. And so thus, from the perspective of what is possessed from that lasting hope, from that abiding hope, the loss and suffering was mild in comparison to what they were awaiting. It was mild. We make oftentimes make much of the many good things that we have. And that's not to say that I don't wish to communicate that um, having, nice, having uh, nice things and lack of affliction, those are not evil. I don't want to communicate that. Those are not evil. But they're not necessary. They're not necessary. They're what we call ancillary. That means subordinate. And not to be held on to with such a tight fist. There's only one white knuckle grip to which the book of Hebrews is calling us to. It's the white knuckle grip on Christ by faith. Because of what we have in Christ Jesus. The surety of that lasting city. The surety of what is coming. We're going to talk more about that future outlook in just a moment. But that loss and suffering was mild in comparison to what they were awaiting. They need to remember, as it seems, because based on what we've read, they have neglected or are in danger of neglecting. And thus neglecting this so great a salvation and thus letting the cares of this world move them to forget that which is waiting for believers in Christ Jesus. Or for it to become something that is kind of a a dim, oh yeah, we have that. That should never be an, oh yeah, we have that too. Rather, that should be, we have this. And that defines everything else. We must never forget that which is waiting for us in Christ Jesus. For in so doing, we can exchange an eternal mindset for one fundamentally rooted in preserving what we have in this life, whether it would be riches, whether it would be freedom, whether it would be influence and status. We we as Christians in our history have made absolute fools of ourselves when we compromise to hold on to or gain such things. And we will so do again, if that's what we do. Whether those things would be honor, influence, affluence, or some sort of earthly result that we measure by some sort of metric we can see, our eyes will be taken off of that for which we wait. The hope becomes dim 
It goes into the background. And the present circumstances become the preeminent things. That seems to be what's going on among these readers of the book of Hebrews. They've forgotten that which they, they've forgotten how they've endured before because that hope was so present for them. And maybe through ease or just through being tired, they're letting their present circumstances become preeminent in their thinking and thus forgetting the eternal hope. It is then, my brothers and sisters, when we do such, that we are in danger of looking away. One of the greatest stories outside of what we see in the scriptures ever told is the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It follows a man named Pilgrim who is seeking to escape the destruction that's to come upon his city. An evangelist comes to him and tells him, look at yon wicker gate. Just keep looking at that and head there. Every time he takes his eyes off that wicker gate, he ends up stuck somewhere, whether it was in the miry clay or in the, in the miry uh, bog or uh, climbing up the hill of legality. It means climbing up and climbing up and it could never seem to get to the top. And even after he got into the wicker gate, there's always distractions things that could take his eyes off the direction he was going. Something we must remember, a little secret I'm going to let us in on. The gospel is not about preserving or creating a nice, comfy, middle-class and suburban shelter so we can have a lifestyle that is culturally easy and comfortable for us so we never have to be exposed to the fallenness of the fallen world. It's not that those things, that is, having a comfortable life, and as I said earlier, and such, that's not an evil, that is something that is bad. Some in recent years have implied that, saying, almost implying that those things are evil in and of themselves. It's not true. I don't wish to communicate that. But as I said earlier, they are subordinate to and non-essential to Christianity and must be held on to very, very, very loosely. We must be harnessed to this hope and live in and for Christ in the ordinary, whether that be in comfort or in difficulty. To live by faith in him. Whether we have comfortable life or whether we have difficulty or whether we have all of the above, there is this hope to which we must cling to as no other. when I say this, I'm saying we because it is something I also struggle with, as I imagine you as well. I myself have great concern about the future of even reformed expressions of Christianity in the West. Not because of all the things going on in the culture. That's always happened. But sometimes it seems in reaction to all the things going around, that we're running around trying to find a way to make a heaven on earth and turning to danger to dangers of false teaching such as theonomy and reconstructionism and turning the Christian hope into one of a rebuilt and reconstructed worldly kingdom. 
That's not the Christian hope, my brothers and sisters. And that when we turn that into the Christian hope, history has, and this is not the first time, it's happened over and over again. Whenever we do that, Christianity loses its power because we lose our hope. It's been tried many a time and it leads and has led each and every time to a neutered Christianity that is no Christianity because the life and death of Christ is robbed of its power by doing things as treating the death of Christ as but an example to follow or a nice story through which we can learn moral examples. The late 17th century, I'm sorry, 18th century, the 1700s, for about 50 years or so in continental Europe, Christianity had been regarded, even by most Christians, as, another institu- as just another institution tasked with advancing and preserving some sort of this-worldly agenda. Creating cultural revival of sorts in the wake of revivals that had happened. Wanting to recreate that and make that the norm. There were men like Frederick Schleiermacher in order to preserve an influence to do so because in that era there was much doubt about whether Christianity was legitimate. That was when the rise of deism and the rise of Unitarianism, both which are non-Christian teaching. Very common. The idea of miracles broadly speaking, was regarded as, as oh, those things don't happen. And so thus Jesus couldn't have actually risen from the dead. So Frederick Schleiermacher and others said, we need to preserve our influence. So he said, we need to take things like resurrection and death and fallenness and things like that. And we need to say they're not very important. The important thing is the moral teachings we glean from those myths. It was the only way that he could see that the influence of Christianity could be preserved. My brothers and sisters, that's a false and powerless gospel. When we make Christianity about this life, about this life, that's just an example of an application of that. When we make it about this life, the parables of Jesus make clear that we will leave Christ behind. And history has shown this over and over and over again. We only have any earthly, have only, we really truly only have any earthly good we can offer if we truly understand and cleave to that hope which is ours that's coming to us, that city, if we live by that. What we see, what we see around us, and the things we can hold on to, status, influence, riches, wealth, whatever we name it, can become so potent because those are things we can touch and see and we can hear. That we lose sight of that for which we hope. So like those to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing, I say to us, Let this word say to us, let us remember. Let us remember our first love. Let us remember the hope which is before us. That hope that is of an eternal value. 
could also say that being told that we need to remember from this text to forget the hope is to forget the reason for the hope. The reason for the hope and the reason for which Christ came is because of the depths of our sinfulness. And in seeing our sinfulness, we must be drawn to Christ. Such things start with looking at the persecutor and saying, and putting in our minds, them. Them. In such a way as to stand over them with a sense of superiority. Brothers and sisters, we must remember we are but beggars who, who, ha, who know where there's food and can point those beggars to that food. For if we begin standing in superiority, we, have for, we are beginning to forget. We, each of us, myself included, do that. Do that. And in that moment, we are forgetting the reason for our hope and the need for our hope. And so that's the exhortation to remember. Then he has another exhortation, which is to don't throw away your confidence. Do not toss aside. You, many of you may have experienced this. I'm sure you have. Some who are more prone to doing this, like myself, who in a flurry of deciding he needs to reorganize, goes through and says, I haven't used this in about six months or a year or something like that. I don't need it anymore. And then, then I throw it away. And about six months later, forgetting that I threw it away, realize I need that thing and say, where is that thing? And tear through their house looking for the thing. And then my, uh, my dear wife, who's able to um, remember things like that, says, you threw it away, dear must remember, we cannot throw away our confidence. We always need that confidence. Always need that confidence. The confidence that we shall dwell in the city for which we wait, an eternal and lasting city. <clears throat> remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we heard about confidence through the language of boldness. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What do we see there? He's giving an exhortation here in that particular context of how uh, Jesus is great. Uh, right. He has been asserting Jesus is greater than Moses. He's transitioning to Jesus is greater than the priesthood. And he says we have a great high priest to hold fast our confession. And, be, and because of the high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, but is without sin though tempted in every way as we are, he says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, may, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
How can we presume to go before the throne of God with confidence? There are people who might, I've heard people read this, and they say, that's being awfully presumptuous to say that you have confidence to go before God. Of course, that's looking at it from a particular perspective. That's looking at it from the perspective of, that's the person saying, uh, that's what we call the art of projection. That's someone projecting their own sense of, I don't have what it takes to approach God. Or they're looking at you saying, I know how evil you are. I know, I know the things you do. Why do you think you can approach God with confidence? That's well, because it's rooted in the one who's the greater than. He is the confidence that we have to approach the throne of grace. Because Christ, the greater than, he is our confidence. And so how is it that we could presume to have confidence to expect the glory of an eternal city in the same way as approaching God, have that bold confidence to say it's not an if, but it is a when for in Christ Jesus. Again, I've heard it said, is that not arrogant to say that you have a confident expectation that this is yours? Again, that's assuming something. That's assuming that it's mine because I have qualified for it and I am good enough for it. Not good enough. But it's because Christ is the greater than and he's qualified us for that confidence. It's rooted in Christ. A confidence that is rooted in I am good enough where God will just let everybody in are empty confidences that have nothing to do with what Christ has done for us. The confidence is rooted in Christ and His work for for us and united to Him by faith. Notice what He says, the one He's displeased displeased with in Hebrews 11, verse 37 and following. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And what is that faith? But it is resting upon receiving from Christ. But to second or second Christ to other concerns is to begin letting go and throwing away that confidence. So the how is to believe Christ. It is to believe Christ and to hold on to him by faith to rest on him and no one else for our eternal hope. We must root the Christian hope and our expectation in an, what we call, in a big word, and we've defined it before, we'll define it, define it again, an eschatological hope, a hope that's looking for the end of all things. How many times has Hebrews, we've just read it today, as the day approaches, as the day approaches. That's the hope of the Christian, my brothers and sisters. And that's what we proclaim and that's what we hold on to. It's one in which we, we, we get a taste now. We get to, ta- as a, to use an imperfect illustration. We have the dough that we can taste. But that cake dough is nothing like that glorious cake on the last day. 
That cake dough is nothing. Uh, it pales in comparison to the greatness of what's coming when it's finally baked. So what is it that secures our hope? It is Christ and Christ alone, Jesus and what he's done for us. So let us not forget what unites us to him, faith in him. Faith bears fruit, but that fruit does not unite us to him. We can never say that. Faith always bears fruit. Union with Christ bears fruit, but that fruit never unites us to Christ. Rather, it is our resting upon him and receiving him that we must do. So by faith, we look to him, not our fruit, not our present circumstances. Present circumstances, present circumstances are not a good barometer of our Christian health. They are not a good barometer. I think we see in the Psalms many times, he says, why is it that the wicked man has all these things and I have nothing? Present circumstances are not a barometer of our Christian health. Rather, our union to Christ is the barometer of our Christian health and the health of a church. Our clinging to Christ is the barometer of that hope. It is true, as we're reading Proverbs, that when we live well, and trust the, when we trust the Lord and live well, things, go, things, things from a general point of view, we can say will go well for us. But we need to understand what going well for us means. We oftentimes define that in terms of present earthly circumstances. God gets to define what going well for us is, not us. <clears throat> and so, brothers and sisters, in closing... Well, many of us likely have not experienced, I don't think anyone in this room, and if I'm wrong, please correct me after service, has experienced what these Hebrew believers experienced early on in their Christian walk in terms of their persecution for the faith. But yet we also all remember and can remember when Christ is ever so present and real to us that we can keep putting one foot in front of the other and nothing seems to phase us. Maybe some of us are in difficult circumstances and doing that now. So let us remember that. And let us remember the example of those who've gone before us, who because of that hope endured all of these things. So we can remember this great hope that we have and live in it and buy it. And thus... Let us not throw away our confidence, which at the end is a great reward. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life in Christ Jesus. That reward is, Christ is the basis of that reward. It's not because we've done A, B, C, and D and done well enough and thus, okay, you get the reward. It's because Christ has secured it for us. And in union with him, we have it. So hold on to Christ, my brothers and sisters. Let us not let present circumstances, whether our own personal circumstances or the circumstances all around us, which have always been a reality for Christians in different degrees and different times and places. We said before, I think it was last week,
we've we oftentimes ask what is the worst the world is what is the worst time what is the worst time the world has ever been in and each generation will, will say my time is the worst time ever we must not let those things distract us from the hope nor tweak our hope nor change the basis of our hope let us be guided by what he's revealed in his word and be cling to Christ and Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in Christ Jesus and are thankful for the great hope that we have in him because of what he's done for us. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to cling to Christ as if nothing else matters because in reality, nothing else does matter. Lead us in your way, in your life. Help us to remember the good things and to not throw away our confidence. We pray these things, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.